Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Dr. Dick Foe. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. In the 1990s, when the Southeast White House was purchased, which is a block from the Dream Center, there were a couple of guys there that had a dream about that building. And um, one of them is now in heaven, and the other one has struggled mightily with some illnesses. But uh, to sit here and see that, I got to tell you, that's a fantastic thing that has happened and continues to happen. You talk about something unfolded over a number of years to watch, almost two decades, to watch that unfold is a powerful thing. That's what our series is about. We have a series on the Sermon on the Mount, as you already saw, called Unfolded. The Sermon on the Mount, which probably, probably Jesus shared these thoughts a number of different places at a number of different times. Most scholars think that, but it's captured in Matthew 5 uh, through 7, those those chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's it's an expression, an unfolding, if you will, of this new kind of authority, this new kind of rule called the kingdom of God. Jesus is setting the stage, and there's a sense in which these chapters, Matthew 5 through 17, excuse me, could be sort of an apprentice's manual of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So we're going to jump in. And uh, let me start with this little story. It was October of 1963, 54 years ago this month, as a matter of fact. I was 21 years old and four months married. Three weeks after we married in Modesto, California, Ruth and I got in the car that I got in the deal, which was a 1960 Corvair. Any of you old enough to remember what a Corvair was, you know? dangerous car. I bought three of them. But uh, it was my first year at Wheaton Graduate School, and I got a letter in October from my father saying that he was leaving my mother after 29 years of marriage. I sort of knew that was coming, because this doesn't happen like that. You see signs and so forth. But my reaction was strange. I got the letter. I can remember going into the bedroom and starting to weep and Ruth coming and holding me. And my, my response was this, how could he do this to me? Now, I was angry and maybe a wee bit self-centered. I'm just saying, okay? <laughs> Life is full of surprises. Life is what happens when you expected something else, right? It's also full of questions. When you're young, like when you're two or three, the classic question for a two-year-old or a three-year-old is what? Why? Well, did it, why? Well, because, and, and finally the parent just gets exasperated and says, because I said so. You know, that's, that's the why. When you get older and harder of hearing, like I am, the question that is most often asked is, what? <laughs> In between, The question that is asked is how? How do we do this thing called life? How do we navigate the minefields of this and that and the other thing? How do we handle recessions that are economic or relational or whatever kind 
of thing that is going on. It's trying to figure out how life works. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, speaks precisely to that question. How, how does life work best? It's both descriptive in terms of blessings, and you read those blessings. We call them beatitudes, where, where God essentially blesses a lot of marginalized people, people who are poor in spirit or people who mourn or so forth. But it's also prescriptive on how to live life if you want it to work the way that the kingdom of God really works. Part of understanding how life works is to grasp those things that hinder or stop life working in the way it should work. Let me say that again. Part of figuring out how life works is to get a handle on some of those things that hinder life from working. Last week, Joel started out by talking about this upside-down kingdom. If you weren't here last week, go online and watch the message. It was tremendous. I called him and told him that. And um, he talked about loving our enemies. So I want to reflect this weekend on why that is such a lifelong task. The story that he started with was that he was playing basketball against one of their arch rivals at this little Midwestern college. A guy went up to make a shot, and Joel, the man, went up and blocked it. The next time out with the ball, the guy got the ball, and he turned around and essentially said to Joel, if you don't remember this, you can't do that twice, or bet you can't do that twice. Joel did it twice. And when he landed, the guy gave him a roundhouse to the side of the head, right? And what Joel did next was he got mad. Well, all of us get mad when we feel wronged. In any of a hundred ways, anger becomes the issue. So on the mountain, as Jesus, before he addresses our actions, he talks about us being salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Your body... Your person, but your body doesn't work without salt and light. Both of those things are necessary to life. Light is embedded in the food chain. If you don't have light, you don't have vegetables or meat or any of that stuff. So he's saying, you know, this is what you are. You are, you are necessary to the world, salt and light. And then immediately, he starts talking about getting mad. We all know what anger, this one particular feeling, he zeroes in on it. We all know what that feels like. It's a reaction. All humans know a number of feelings. We know what loneliness feels like. We know what fear feels like. We know what grief feels like. And we all know what anger feels like. Listen to how Jesus says it, Matthew, the fifth chapter, 17th verse, because he's putting it in the context of what they already know, which is the law and the prophets. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, because Jesus is seen as a rabble rouser. He's seen, by, he's seen by some as a false prophet and all that. He says, I haven't come to knock that out. I've come to make it real. I've come to fill it up. He comes to fill up the law. And then, then he says it this way. He doesn't speak about the law like the Old Testament law, but he talks about stuff that's been added to the law. This is how it's, because when you, speak at the, when you speak about the law, you say it is written, 
What he says next is, you have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, this text, this is not baby Jesus meek and mild. This is, this is big Jesus in your face, okay? You have heard it said that whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I, I don't... I don't mind him talking about murderers because I ain't one. I mean, except maybe in my mind, sometimes, you know. But now he's, he's meddling. Now he's down in where I live, in the anger quotient, the AQ, okay? I just made that up just this moment. <laughs> whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This is a gathering of people. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Gehenna. Gehenna was a garbage dump, essentially, in a little valley where you went and burned the garbage. Some of you, again, are old enough to remember when we burned the garbage out in our backyards, okay? So my thought is this. He's talking about this whole new kingdom. It's not just a way of thinking. It's this embedded thing. It's this thing that's transformational. And, and my thought is this. If the kingdom or rule of God doesn't affect my inner man and my everyday life, it can't be much of a kingdom. Let me say it again. If the kingdom or rule of God does not affect my inner man and my everyday life, it can't be much of a kingdom, can't be much of an authority in my life. So, anger, what is it? You say, well, I know what it is. You don't have to explain it to me. Well, I'm just going to read. A strong emotion that is accompanied by arousal of the nervous system and produces effects throughout the body. It eats away at your cardiovascular system, your gut, and hijacks your nervous system, often obliterating the capacity for clear thinking. It may even grow in intensity. We have lots of words for anger, just some nouns. Rage, vexation, exasperation, displeasure, crossness, irritation, indignation, one of my favorite ones, peak. It's peak, whatever that is. I have a friend named Dave Gable. I love, I love one of his definitions. He says, that guy was in a towering snit. I love that phrase for anger, you know, whatever that is. The verbs, infuriate, irritate, exasperate, irk, vex, peeve, madden, put out, enrage, incense, annoy, or phrases. Make somebody's blood boil, rub the wrong way, get someone's back up, make them see red, get their dander up, rattle their cage, make their hackles rise, aggravate, rile, tick off, tee off, burn up. Doesn't sound too good, I'm just saying. So how does it happen? Well, I know when it happens, it happens anytime, anywhere, with anyone. It just pops up, everyday opportunities, circumstances real or imagined. I mean, those of you who have little kids, they're gorgeous when they're born. They're so sweet. And then they turn two. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm speaking the truth, aren't I? It doesn't say exactly that in the Bible, but I'm saying, okay? They turn two. Our eldest granddaughter is now 26, and she herself is married and pregnant, right? When she was two or between two and three, they were in a hotel, you know, hotel lobby. Parents were there. Something thwarted her will. Let me just put it that way. 
she threw herself on the ground. She's in a little dress, she's lovely, threw herself on the ground, screamed, and the psychologists all say, just ignore them. Well, when you're in a hotel lobby, it makes you crazy. People are looking at you saying, what kind of a kid did you raise? Well, apparently not a very good one. She's there, you know. She's there and she's screaming and failing and it goes on for about a minute. They ignore her and pretty soon she gets up and she brushed down her dress and said, me better now. <laughs> because that's what anger is a feeling. It's an arousal response like fear flight syndrome. That's what it is. What makes us angry with each other? I was thinking, what makes me sort of just irritated? What it, well, when I'm coming across the 14th Street Bridge and I signal to change lanes. <laughs> and that person sees it yeah. and speeds up. Right, right. If you're one of those people, <laughs> I have a prophetic word tonight for you. As my English friend would say, naughty, naughty, do not do that. Or if I'm on a plane, I fly a lot. And somebody comes through and they're in seat 26C and they put their bag over 14A. Naughty, naughty. Do not do that. You didn't buy that space. You bought the 26C space. That's how I'm thinking, right? I get upset when you don't fit into my plans or when I'm feeling poorly or when something happened I didn't expect or when we had an agreement and you somehow defaulted on it or when I'm just in a bad mood or my coffee wasn't hot enough, or a lot worse, when I'm embarrassed, or humiliated, or used, or abused. I actually can store stuff up over time. In marriage, we call that gunny sacking. That's where something happens, but you want to be cool, so you just stick it in the gunny sack. For those of you, those of you who are younger, that's what you used to have potatoes came in those sacks, maybe still. You stick it in there, and then something else happens, and you stick it in there, and something else happens, and you stick it in there. And then one day, he doesn't come home when he says he's going to come home. He's late. Or she does something at breakfast that bothers, and the gunny sack goes, bam! Because the incident is usually not the thing that is the source of the anger. It's over here somewhere, right? Are you with me here? I'm getting a fair number of amens tonight, so at least we identify it. You know? And then along comes Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. And he's comparing the very best of regular life to what the kingdom looks like. And he starts probing the heart of the difference in the two kingdoms, and the first thing he lands on is anger. And everything else that follows, that he talks about, is rooted in this idea of anger. And I ask the question, why that? Well, because it's who we are. It's how everybody responds at some point over something in some way. I've even gotten angry with God. Now you notice that I'm still here because he's big enough to handle my puny anger, okay? Because it's always misplaced. But uh, in a few weeks, Pastor Mark's newest book is coming out. It's called Whisper. 
hearing the voice of God or how to hear the voice of God. And in there, he references a story that I shared with him of a friend of mine, Denny McNabb, who was 28 years old and the associate director of Campus Life Youth for Christ in East Central Illinois back in the mid-70s. He was one of my best friends and he suffered a rhythmic heart failure. And in so doing, it brain damaged him. He is still brain damaged these many years later. And he reverted from being 28 to eight years old, essentially. But he was in a coma for 30 days, and I can remember standing by his bed, and we did everything as a church that I knew to do. We fasted, we prayed, we anointed with oil for healing. But I walked in there, and some of you have had this happen, whether it's with injuries and auto accidents or in the war or, or some other thing that causes it. And the person you knew, he was funny, he was smart, and the person you knew go, goes away. And you walk in, and here they are. They're, they're restrained in a bed with tubes everywhere. And you holler at them. It's like shouting into a cave and getting no response. You don't know where your friend went. And I stood by that bed that, that day, almost 30 days in, and said, I believe the spirit of man dwells in the cortex of the human brain. And the, when, when the brain is damaged, that person's no longer human. I said that to God. I walked into the elevator, and I turned and slipped. You know, there wasn't anybody there except me. Turned and slammed my fist into the elevator wall. Almost broke my hand. And I asked the classic question, why? Got two little kids, all that. And it was though the Lord said, like through C.S. Lewis sometime later, where he says, sometimes we ask God nonsense questions. We say stuff like, so is yellow two inches long? Or how wide is brown? You know, that, they're nonsense. And he said, God can answer any question you ask, but my frame of reference may not be large enough to understand it, okay? But I was angry. With, it was my response out of frustration and hurt and pain for my friend. Dallas Willard is a philosopher, theologian, who's now with Jesus. He taught for many years at the University of South, Southern California, wrote several books, including one called The Divine Conspiracy that speaks to the Sermon on the Mount. I recommend it to you. I, I was with Dallas some years ago. Just he and I were taking a little walk in California. I said, Dallas, I got to tell you, I don't like your books. He said, really? Why? I said, well, it takes me like I got to read every page three times. Like when Ruth and I write a book, we have monosyllables, but you don't have any monosyllables in your, in your book. But this is what he says about anger. It's an automatic response of any normal, decent human being to any person or event that threatens his or her security status or satisfaction. Security, status, or satisfaction. So if we follow Jesus, I want to think like he thinks. I want to respond like he does. So the key question is, does Jesus get angry? If I'm his follower and I want to be like him in his spirit, does he get angry? Well, Mark 3:46. It's the Sabbath. Some religious leaders are criticizing him, and this is what he says. He said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. This was a man with a withered arm. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians' political party against him as to how they might destroy him. Mark 10, 13, and 14. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. 
You know, they're, they're, they're the kind of acolytes. They're the apprentices. They're getting heavy teaching. And here come probably women with young children. And, you know, they didn't count anyway in that culture. And so he's pushing them away. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. You've heard me say this before. If you want to make God mad, try to keep little kids away from him. That's why when the little kids go out over to crosswalk, that's such a cool thing. You know, God's saying, good, good deal. That's what I'm about. John 2, 15 through 17, he's at the temple. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. These, these were people at tables trying to profit. They were, they were people not only trying to profit, but they were, they were um, unfairly trying to profit. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their temples, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what is it that ticks Jesus off that makes him indignant. Mark Buchanan, who's a pastor in Oregon, says it, or in uh, British Columbia, says it this way. Jesus loses his temper with people who try to keep other people from experiencing a touch of God, especially if there are people who lack influence, children, the sick, a woman with a shady past. He waxes angry with anyone who throws up obstacles to someone else's need and hunger for God. Do not hinder them is his watchword. And what usually hinders the child, the sick, the beggar, the woman? Ironically, tragically, it's the false indignation of the entitled. It's those of us who try to defend our little patch of turf. Jesus isn't saying that the emotion of anger is sinful. What he's saying is that anger is dangerous. Be careful. Work at preventing an anger response. I love this proverb, Proverbs 1911, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Because to be righteous at peace with God and yourself is the goal. Anger that's nurtured or sustained works against that goal. Ephesians 4, 26, 27 reads like this, in your anger, don't sin. It, it, it assumes that there will be anger because that's the natural response, right? It assumes that. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. He's saying keep short accounts. Okay, you got angry. Yes, you felt it. Yes, you had that problem, you know, so. Don't let that feeling of anger stick to your heart. I had this sort of image in my head when I was putting this together. Don't let your anger be stuck to your heart with Gorilla Glue. <laughs> are, are we good here? You know what Gorilla Glue, Crazy Glue, whatever it was. You know? Do not let whatever angry response stick in your heart with Gorilla Glue. Register that offense if you must, but do it on a post-it. Let me say that again. If there's an anger response... Don't let it stick to your heart with Gorilla Glue. Register it on a post-it and get rid of it. Because if it stays there, it turns cancerous. If it stays there, it will eat up our whole life. James 1. James is a very practical letter. And it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Quick to listen, 
slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger gets in the way of the goodness of God being expressed in my life. Anger gets in the way of the grace of God being expressed in my life. And when I hang on to it, it becomes an impediment to the flow of the Spirit. Beyond that, anger feeds anger. It takes us toward contempt. And when you read that text in, in Matthew 5, what, what Dallas Willard says is that essentially is that anger and contempt are the ugly twins. Where does contempt take us? Well, it takes us to language that is hard and searing and sarcastic, ultimately filthy, foul words designed to humiliate and lacerate and kill. You're saying you're being a little bit over the top this weekend, aren't you? No, he said that. Jesus says, don't, first of all, don't let the anger fester. If you do, it takes you to contempt. And those are my people out there that, that, that you are saying racha to. Now, now, we don't use the word racha, which is a Hebrew word that means fool. We don't use that word in our culture, but it probably is like what it sounds like, racha, okay? But if you thought of the worst word that you could think of to call somebody, that's probably the equivalent of racha. And what, what contempt does, it takes us toward epithets and expletives that reveals who we are, not who that person is, and attitudes that demean others. It sends people to the burning garbage heap. That attitude, those words, sends people to the garbage heap. When I was president of this little college, I had a glass top on my desk. I don't know why I did. I think it's to protect the wood or something, but the wood doesn't have any character because you got the glass top on it, no scratches or dings or anything like that. But, but I kept under the glass top a, a piece of prose by Carl Sandburg, the poet, who, um, who called this primer lesson, First Steps. Look out how you use proud words. When you let proud words go, it's not easy to call them back. They wear long boots, hard boots. They walk off proud. They can't hear you calling. Look out how you use proud words. If the people around us are made in God's image, by extension, when I assault them in some way with my anger, I'm assaulting a holy, kind, and generous God. That's essentially, and you need to understand that I'm talking to me here because I, you know, I don't know if it's age, but things sort of set my teeth on edge now that didn't used to set my teeth on edge, you know. But then Jesus comes along and ratchets it up just about the time I think, okay, okay, I'll try not to be angry, but if I get angry, I'll put it on a post-it and we'll be good, you know. And then he says, Matthew 5, 23, 24, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So in this most intimate, sacred moment with God, if I remember that somebody's mad at me, I need to go and talk to them? You gotta be kidding. I mean, I'm, I'll take responsibility for my anger, but why do I have to take responsibility for theirs? 
I don't know. He just said it. I think I do know. Because if there's anything that I can help alleviate, if there's anything that I can mitigate or change or work through, I need to take a run at it. Doesn't mean he'll respond to me. Doesn't mean we'll get it together. It just means that I've done what he told me to do. Because in my int in intimacy with God, I don't, let, I don't want my anger or that person's anger to get in the way if we can avoid that. This is a proactive kingdom. This is not a reactive kingdom. This is a salt and light kingdom. It's exorbitant and expansive light and salt. I like what Dallas Willard says in this book, and I'm, I'm almost to the end here. He says, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. There is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. The sense of self-righteousness that comes with our anger simply provokes more anger and self-righteousness on the other side. You say, is that true? Yes, I've experienced that. I've done that more times than I want to tell you. You know, I've been around, well, you've heard me say it, you know, I'm, oh, I'm over seven decades on the planet. I've done that more times than I want to tell you. Sometimes it was small, sometimes it was big. But behind my anger, there was this sense that there was more to me and more to the kingdom than that. So, back to my father. It took me eight years to be able to hug my father. He wasn't a terrible man. I don't think he got it right. But those were essentially eight lost years. You say, if you'd have gone to him and forgiven him right away or done whatever you're supposed to do, would it have been a lot better? I don't know if it would have been a lot better between us, but it would have been a lot better for me and certainly for him. And you say, well, weren't you hurt? Weren't you confused? Didn't you feel betrayed? Yeah, sure. But I could have done a lot better for both of us. In a moment of personal hurt or offense when it comes, Scripture says this, be angry, if you need to be angry, be angry, but don't sin. Keep short accounts, don't let the sun set, because anger deals death. The way Dallas Willard says it is, it's the doorway to Gehenna. When you let that fester, literally all hell breaks loose. Be angered by those things that prevent people, if you're gonna be really angry, be, be angered by those things that prevent people from receiving the touch of God. I was thinking as I was preparing these thoughts, how do I, how do I want to close this time? Because when you're, when you're a speaker like I am, how you close is big. How does this all come together? And what I felt in my heart was that I wanted to pray. I wanted to speak to God. And, and if in your heart as you prayed, you felt that what I was saying was what you feel, I want you to agree with it in your heart. So as I pray, I'd like us to bow our heads, if you will. So it's just you and the Lord. Nobody's looking at other people. And... Um, as I pray, 
as you, if you identify with this, just in your spirit, say, that's who I am, Lord. That's what I need, Lord, and go from there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want your spirit. I want your control in my life. I want your heart. Let the anger that I know that I have held, let the anger that I have locked in with Gorilla Glue, break it loose by your spirit even as we pray and let it drain out of me so that I really can be salt and light. Let it drain out in this moment so that I really can be salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.